0: Let me first take a moment just to thank you, brethren of Hope Reformed Baptist Church, for inviting us to and hosting us and welcoming us as you have. It, is, it has been and will be no doubt a delight to be with you through the remainder of the day. God is good. He has bound us together as brethren. When I think apart from that, if I understood the message properly this morning, you probably wouldn't even like me. So it's good to be with you, brethren. We thank the Lord for this time we have together. With the thought of our celebration of Reformation Sunday, and what we're doing is gathering together, gathering together as brethren, our theme this afternoon is really that idea of fellowship as brethren. And so I think appropriately I've named the title this afternoon, Living Together as, as the Redeemed or as Redeemed Brethren. Now the passage of scripture that we'll be looking at is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. It's dense. There's a lot here. This is uh, rapid-fire commendation from the Apostle, and I've tried as much as possible to condense and crystallize this. Let me begin by reading Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near Now let me begin with some initial observations regarding the text before us in hebrews 10 verses 19 through 25 the writer of the letter has just reached a conclusion to the development of a series of a previous teaching now it's not my purpose today to look deeply into the preceding teaching but i do need to reference it for the sake of context and understanding The teaching is summarized for us in verses 19 and 21, 19 through 21, and then a concentrated cluster of practical application of that doctrinal teaching is revealed in verses 22 through 25. In 22 through 25, we find three things that the church is told to do, three practical ways for redeemed brethren to live together based on the preceding teaching. Note that each of the three primary practical commands begins with the words, let us. Now, for clarity and elaboration, each of these three let us lessons found in verses 22 through 25, each practical command has an attached antecedent point of application supporting its primary practical teaching. Now, as we look at this passage together this afternoon, the question we have before us, as we as we consider this structure and these commands, the question we have before us is this. How do the redeemed live together in a community of brethren? So really we're dealing with the subject of the existential function of the church. Now to begin, as I said, we need to look at the premise doctrine. The foundational teaching, which the writer of Hebrews will apply, is found in verses 19 through 21, and he says... Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now note the therefore of verse 19. This signals to us that the writer has reached a conclusion, a conclusion to the previous teaching, and he's about to state a consequential conclusion under that, a necessary outcome that proceeds from his teaching. But just before he, state what, he states what turns out to be three consequential conclusions, which I've identified as application, he very helpfully summarizes his teaching for us in these three verses, 19, 20, and 21. Now that foundational doctrine has two main ideas that are connected as a whole. The first half of the doctrinal teaching is found in verse 19 and 20. The second is found in verse 21. They're intertwined. Now let's briefly review these halves individually. The first half of this premise doctrine is that the redeemed now confidently enter holy places through Jesus Christ. Now this first half of the teaching is going to lead us to an answer to the question. Our question. With this first doctrinal statement, the writer of Hebrews gives us the why of living and operating together as a church community and fellowship. First, he informs us that we live together in a state of communal access or, or uh, corporate access. We're united as a community in a state of confidential access to the holy places. We have certainty in similar access together. We, brethren, are all able to come into the very presence of God And this speaks of our redemption through the blood of Jesus purchasing reconciliation with God. The temple, recall, had sections. It was wonderful that we read about the temple or the tabernacle this morning. The temple had sections that were absolutely barred to any but the priests. Some that were barred to any but the high priest. And even then, the high priest could enter those areas with great limitation only, at specific times only, and with great infrequency. But now, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us, now God's people have been given real access to what those places could only once represent, meeting with God. And we've been given unbarred permanent access through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the first unifying statement that the writer of Hebrews declares in order to bind the church together. He's telling us that we all have confidence to enter into holy places and meet with God. The Gentiles not excluded. Women and children are not excluded. Unlike the temple of ancient Jerusalem in Jesus' day, there is no court of the Gentiles, separate court of women. We all have the same access to God, and so we may all come before him clothed in Christ's righteousness with a singular, identical confidence. There's no one in our congregations who have partial access. Think about that. There's none entering a lower access point. There are no spiritual castes that we recognize. It's not as if we have different levels of clearance to a secure facility like a military base or a government building or a palace of a king. All have the same full access and therefore we all have or should have the same confidence as we recognize that we stand before God equally and fully accepted in the beloved. We who compose the church all have confident entree to the thrice-holy God exactly the same way, for the same reason, on the same grounds of admission and acceptance. The writer of Hebrews would also have us recognize that there is no variance in the manner of accomplishment of our redemption, which has brought us reconciliation with God and brings us into his presence with access and confidence in that access. It's exactly the same manner of redemption, the same foundation of redemption for all of us, through the same parted curtain, the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. Now there's an implication which we can immediately draw from this singular avenue of salvific reconciliation that admits us into the very presence of the thrice-holy God. What is that implication? This is real spiritual equity. This teaching of a singular entrance into holy places, this speaks of an equity of community that I would argue can and does only appear in human society in the Church of Jesus Christ. There are not many different ranks of Christian in the church. There are not many ways to God because we all have equal full access to God through one way alone, Christ Jesus. As Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one In Christ Jesus. Brethren, do you recognize that can only be said to the church. We can therefore build a society without religious ranking. That is, to my knowledge, unique in the Protestant Reformed Christian faith. We don't have popes and cardinals and Dalai Lamas. The king is not the head of the church. We all have equal access, and we all have the same assurance of that access to God as his children adopted in the Beloved, as we were reminded this morning. And none of us enter into this community through our own achievements. None of us are saints in the Roman Catholic sense of the word. No, Ben and I did not compare notes. Having somehow purchased a better confidence, a higher standing before God and the church through our good works. No, brethren, we are one community of equal standing in Jesus Christ, our entrance into holy places. Now, how how ironic that the society of the church foundationally possesses what postmodern secular Western culture claims to be desperately seeking in our days, equity, Now, sadly, I don't have time to develop that thought today, but we can talk about it over lunch if you want to. Now, moving forward to verse 21, we discover that the writer of Hebrews declares another aspect of the foundational doctrine preceding his application. This is the second half of teaching that I mentioned earlier. That's the basis for how the church unites and lives together as a redeemed community. In verse 21, we read these words. And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, the reason the church is established as a united community is because we have a single founder, author and finisher of our faith. We have a single personal leader of our faith. We have a great high priest, Jesus Christ. This means that in addition to an exclusive and singular way of redemption through Jesus Christ, more... Our entire faith is under his headship and administration. All matters of religious doctrine, all manner of religious practice is overruled by him. Not only do we have thorough access to the temple through him and worship God confidently in the temple. Now I'm speaking of spiritual worship, the temple spiritually. Not only do we have that through him, but our access and our worship is guided and taught and led by him. Christ has not only provided entrance to God, but he also maintains and presides over all parts of our access to God. In the church, this high priestly headship appears in ruling over our religious teaching and our religious practice. The Protestant Reformation occurred because the Spirit of Christ ruled in his people, in the true church, to establish the single, pure message of reconciliation to God. The gospel of salvation in Christ alone by grace alone, through faith alone. In the Reformation, Christ demonstrated his rule over the doctrine and the practice of the church, did he not? This united the true church, and it purged the leaven of the papal system. The Spirit of Christ worked in men and through men to discover his word and to submit to the high priestly work of Jesus Christ in terms of true teaching and true worship in the church. The Pope was not the great high priest, As it turns out, church tradition was not the great high priest. The church itself was not the great high priest. Christ has established himself and been established by the father as the great high priest of the church. And with Christ operating as the great high priest of the church, she has a foundation that unites Christians both in doctrine and practice. From the moment of conversion to eternity and glory. It's always going to be this way. Now, for the church to be a united community of redeemed, living together in holy union, Christ must be her only, undisputed, unchallenged great high priest. And he is. Now, having admittedly, inadequately summarized the twofold teaching of verses 19 and 21, let's move forward and let's restate and elaborate a bit on our original question. What is that question? Let me rephrase it this way. These things being true, that we've just spoken about, these things being true, how then do we preserve and promote the fellowship of the church, living as we are, as a redeemed people in Jesus Christ? And now I want to proceed with the time we have left to try to directly answer that question looking at verses 22 through 25. Our goal is to now try to unpack the practical teaching that flows from the doctrinal summary of verses 19 through 21. The first application, the first lettuce lesson, if you want to call it that, can be summarized as follows. Since Christ has reconciled us all to God through the redemption of his blood, and since he officiates and rules as our great high priest, then, verse 22 Let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now this is the first of this series of three commands, beginning with these words, let us. It's both a call to collectively recognize a truth, and it's also a command to practice what we've recognized. The truth we're called to recognize is that since Christ has redeemed us and reconciled us to God, and since he is now our great high priest, then it follows that we really are now truly near to God once we were alienated from god paul in colossians 1:22 through tw- 21 through 22 says this and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him brethren this is the truth that we are to recognize and we are to regard that truth that is really possess it and practice it With a full assurance, we're told. All right, in what way are we to possess with full assurance these teachings? How do I do that? How does that connect with the fellowship of the church? Good questions, glad you asked. First, you are to be fully assured of complete reconciliation through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You are to be assured that the great high priest offered himself to purchase reconciliation with God... And that act of redemption did indeed succeed for you. We're to understand that there is no cause for doubting when we consider the efficacy of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. All who believe, all of us believers, we are to possess a full assurance that all of our sins have been accounted for by Christ's redeeming work. There is no sin left, left out, no final barring, No excluding curtain or barrier that remains between us and God. All sin-producing alienation and judgment has been atoned for and judiciously removed. Second, you're to be assured, we are to be assured, brethren, fully assured, that our faith in the reconciling work of Jesus Christ is real. It's well-founded. It's the certain means whereby the benefits of Christ's redemption are applied to us with sufficiency and permanency. By grace you've been saved through faith. That faith is a divine gift. It can't fail. Like Abraham of old, our faith has been accounted to us as righteousness, both because of the object of our faith and because the faith itself both are of divine origin. The believer is to be fully assured that our faith, which is the gift of God to us, nets us the salvation which Christ procured for us. You're to be assured of that. Now, let's tie these thoughts into our original question. How do we apply this command? This command to recognize the certainty of our reconciliation with God through faith in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. How do we tie this teaching into the fellowship of the church practically? Well, first of all, we're to endeavor to strengthen one another's faith. There are times when our faith will come under attack personally. The Christian will at times be tempted to doubt the full reality, the certainty of their faith. Their assurance will waver at times. The world can speak seemingly reasonable and intelligent words to us which are designed to confuse and undermine the certainty of our faith. As our young people, for example, go off to college, as they go into the workforce, they'll need to be shored up at times to be able to answer and reject the vain philosophies and the twisted reasoning of the world, trying to convince them that their faith is not assured, or at least not fully assured. As a church body, brethren, we are responsible to help our young people stand firm in their faith. In full assurance of the truth and the reasonableness of their faith. In full assurance of the singularity, that is the exclusive certainty of their faith. They possess the one way, the one truth, the one life which brings salvation in Jesus Christ. Brethren, there are times in our Christian life when sin and temptation seem to overwhelm us. There are times when the world, the flesh, and the devil are permitted to buffet us, to knock us around. And these three are diabolically committed to work to unpin our faith from its divine object, Jesus Christ and his work. They work at times to unfound this sure foundation. At those times, our sin can seem too great. Our natural depravity, too insurmountable an obstacle to escape and be saved. When we or our brethren are mercilessly beaten by giant despair and we languish in the dungeons of Doubting Castle, it's the responsibility of our brethren, like brother hopeful, to tell us of the key of promise, which has been forgotten, that lies neglected in our pockets. When Hopeful and Christian were in the dungeon, do you remember they were praying together? Bunyan's story tells us this. They had been jailed because of a sinful departure from obedience and from a consistent walk of faith. And when Christian remembers after prayer that he has the key of promise, Hopeful stirs him to action with these words. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. This is what the church does when our brethren are temporarily overcome by sin and its consequential despair. In their struggle of repentance, they may well be overwhelmed at times by the giant in the dark dungeon into which they foolishly plunged themselves. We remind them at that time of the full assurance they possess in Jesus Christ that their sin is pardoned and paid for, that they have full entrance into the holy places through Jesus Christ. We remind them that they are to pluck out of their bosom the full assurance of their faith fixed firmly on the promise of salvation through Christ's work. We exhort them so that they try that promise against the despair caused by their stumbling in sin. We do that for one another. This is in part what it means to obey the Apostle Paul when he says in Galatians 6 1 through 2, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. When the enjoyment of our full assurance is being hampered by sin, we're to help extricate our brethren from the sin and remind them of the escape from those chains. We're to help bear that burden and work to not only restore the fallen brother or sister to sanctified living, but also to full enjoyment of confidence to enter holy places. Consider this as well. As a congregation living together as redeemed, we apply the command to possess the full assurance of our faith by maintaining the purity of our faith. That faith is the basis of our assurance to enter holy places, to be at peace with God. In keeping our faith pure, we simultaneously operate to firmly found the assurance of our faith, and we also establish the unity of our faith In fellowship together. A church. What am I saying? I'm saying that a church that holds firmly to the pure gospel received from Jesus through the testimony of the apostles. That church does not need to fear that it will be broken by argument and heresy over entrance into holy places. Since that church unitedly recognizes that Christ alone is the great high priest of the church who alone reconciles to God by grace through faith in his redeeming work, that church won't be easily captivated by worldly doctrines, doctrines of humanism, or doctrines of social salvation, or sociopolitical ethical systems of greater good, or legalism, or license. That church, this church that unitedly covenants to maintain the gospel of Jesus Christ without error, that church that diligently watches in order to root out the first planted seed of soteriological error, that church will have a unity of faith, a unity of assured faith together to enter holy places. Any incursion of doctrinal error that touches on the redeeming work of Jesus Christ is never too small for the church to correct. And that's not just the elders' responsibility. You too, as covenanting members of this church, these two churches combined, we are all entrusted with the responsibility to pursue and maintain full assurance of a pure faith. Now, for example, it may seem it may seem like splitting doctrinal hairs to hold that our justification leads to faithfulness to God and his church. But to stringently oppose the teaching that our justification is in any way founded on our faithfulness to God and his church. Or that our justification in any way persists due to our faithfulness to God and his church. You hear the difference? It's quite simply false doctrine. It may seem to some like one is going out of his way to slice that doctrinal baloney a bit thin, But since it's the doctrine of justification, the very basis of our assurance of entering holy places, I assure you, it is not splitting hairs. We have to keep the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of Christ's imputed righteousness, entirely free from even a whisper of contributory human endeavor. The united confidence of the church, our mutual assurance of our faith and salvation, our fraternity as brethren founded on that, it's all tied to the doctrines of salvation. It's tied to maintaining the doctrine of justification, as we've just mentioned, free from error. Now, for this reason, we all have a responsibility as brethren united to watch out for deviation in our doctrines of salvation. That's error that we must not enter into. And when we find it, We are to stand shoulder to shoulder and with one singular voice declare that teaching is contrary to Christ's high priestly work. That teaching will end up driving a wedge of division into the community of the redeemed by hurting our assurance of faith. That teaching is not to be found in our fellowship. Now I want to finish looking at verse 22 by drawing out one final practical inference from the verse. The writer of Hebrews describes the redeemed as follows. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is a reference to the work of a priest. Specifically the high priest mentioned in the previous verse. Now the writer of Hebrews is telling us that since Christ has pure, procured redemption and since he's admitted us into the presence of God and since he's sprinkled us with the sanctifying power of his blood, since that has happened and you're assured that that has happened, then enter into the presence of God with lives that are free from the power of sin. Do not live in sin any longer. Turn in repentance from sin. Always enter into the presence of God. Be reconciled to him and do nothing that would stand in opposition to the holiness of his presence. That's what we're being told. Since Christ has brought you into holy places, blameless through his blood, be blameless in your conduct. He's also purchased your freedom from sin. The application of this teaching speaks to the great sanctifying purpose of the church as a community. A great part of our purpose as the fellowship of the redeemed is to help one another live lives that are truly redeemed in heart and sprinkled from evil. Now, I'm not confusing justification with sanctification. I'm just focusing in the moment on sanctification. The church teaches and preaches the word of God in large part as a means of informing the conscience and awakening it against sin. Why? So that the believer may walk in newness of life, walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to walk in beforehand. A very great piece of the practical purpose of the church is to teach the bride of Christ to wash her garments, to be sanctified from the world. Believers need the community of the church to serve as a means of grace in terms of instruction and exhortation and, brethren, at times even discipline. We need to pray for one another. As we see the evil of the times in which we live, we need to exhort one another that we enter not into temptation because this evil can impact our lives if uncontested. We know this, do we not? Now for this reason, first and foremost, we ought to struggle against sin with passion in our own lives. Since we live together in the context of the church community, I need to realize that the stickiness of my iniquity can rub off on you. I need to be careful not to draw you into my sin and into my own sinful proclivities. By the grace of God... I confess my sin, I turn from it, and I work toward living a more holy and sanctified Christian life, not only for Christ, that's true, not only out of love for him, that's true, not only for myself, that too, but also out of love for you. And then, we work together, having by God's grace removed planks from our own eyes, we now work together to remove specks from the eyes of each other. Why? Why? so that we can live together as the redeemed with sprinkled consciences and washed bodies. Let's move forward to the, in the text. Let's look at the second practical let us lesson. Notice verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Initially, let's note that this is again a direct command to action composed of two parts. One positively stated and the other negatively stated. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. This is the first part of the entwined command. The positive command is to dedicate ourselves to the object of our faith. Since Christ has procured reconciliation with God through his body and blood, and since he is always our great high priest, we must be fixed in our confidence, but especially in the object of our confidence. We need to be clear and certain that we understand that it is Christ alone who is the author and finisher of our faith. Our confidence has a name, is what I'm saying. It's centered in a singular person and an exclusive work. Note that this positive command requires that we commit ourselves to hold fast to the person work. Now that phrase, hold fast suggests that there is force being exerted to withdraw our grip. It suggests that we'll have to exert ourselves against that force. The fact that we need to hold fast to our hope in Christ's work implies that there are forces at work which operate to remove the confidence of our hope in Jesus Christ. The world and the devil offer more additional, special sources of confidence. Or so they would tell us. There are distractions of pleasure and snares of worldly reputation and apparent advantage. There are phony manufactured options of human endeavor which declare that they are a better hope. Satan may hold up even your own sins and your own evil desires, the desires of the flesh, to attempt to weaken your grip on the confession of your hope. We may face false Christians and false religions And if we're not careful, brethren, we may confuse the real confession of our hope for a counterfeit hope peddled by false teachers. Many things are available to us to pull our faith in Christ out of our grip. And against those forces, the writer of Hebrews commands, hold fast. Now, remember, I said this command is an entwined command. The twin of the first part of the command is declared with the words, without wavering we're being told do not waver this negatively stated command tells us what the opposite of holding fast is it touches on the idea that there are not only forces external to our faith which work to pull the confession of our hope away from us but there are also internal subjective forces which work against holding fast in other words we have weak and slippery hands that's what we're being told Our own flesh will align against us. It will work to cause us to let go of our confession of hope in Jesus Christ alone. We have to watch out for those things in life with which we distract ourselves. We have to remember that the temptations of the flesh are real and deadly to our faith. Sin weakens our hope. It mutes it. It quiets it. Temptations ensnare us in order to cause us to walk away from our faith. And at times, sin can even produce a temporary wavering in the believer. Wavering is the idea of going back and forth. First one way and then another. It's a sort of Charlie Brown wishy-washiness. First confidence in one thing and then another. Brethren, we are not to waver. Wavering, also to consider this, it doesn't always have to do with overtly fleshly temptations either. To the Hebrews, to whom the letter we're studying is written, some were wavering over the idea of redemption and reconciliation with God through obedience to the law, keeping the ceremonial rites of the old covenant. They were wavering in their recognition of and their confidence in the object of their faith. Their confidence was one moment in Christ and in another moment in not ingesting unclean foods. In one moment, the confession of their hope was in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. The next moment, it was in keeping sacred feasts and rites. Do you see the problem? To hold fast without wavering is to maintain a fixed and unshakable confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ exclusively. Nothing else may be allowed to replace the object of our faith that object which we're grasping onto in hope for salvation. Nothing, no matter how attractive or persuasive it may seem in a moment. Now, I want to drill down in our application even further, because that's what the writer of Hebrews does next. He does that by answering a question we haven't asked yet. The question is this, how do we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering? Pretty important question, isn't it? The writer of Hebrews answers in the second half of verse 23, following the comma. He says, for he who promised is faithful. Question, how do we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering? Answer, through reliance on faithfulness, the faithfulness of Christ. Not my own faithfulness. The ability of the believer to hold fast to the faith that they've been given is grounded in the faithfulness of Christ. Christ has promised that of all whom the Father has given him, none will be lost. He is the certain finisher of our faith. It's by the efficacy of his blood and the power of his might that we are saved and founded without loss in that faith. We hold fast to our confession because it is Christ who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. We hold fast to our Without loss of our confession and its hope in our lives, we hold fast because he ever lives above to make intercession for us as our great high priest. He's promised to do that. There are many good things, brethren, that we ought to do and many evil things that we ought to avoid for the perseverance or the preservation of our faith. But ultimately, we rely entirely on the help of Jesus Christ to persevere in our faith. Everything else is secondary necessary secondary. There are means of grace. I'm not dismissing that. But it's in Christ that we rest. He who promised is faithful. Not me. I'm not faithful. I rest in him. I seek strength in him. I find strength for my grip in him. There's no place for self-confidence in the Christian faith. None at all. It's all a confidence grounded in Christ alone. He's the source and the persistence of our hope. Now, I want to proceed to apply what we've learned from verse 23 to church fellowship. Remember, I would say first, the plural pronouns us and we. Keep this in your mind as we do this. The teaching we've endeavored to apply, we're working through, is supposed to be applied in the context of a body of redeemed believers living together. Now, one thought of application to us is that we ought to be constantly engaging in discourse and study and preaching and teaching that reminds us of the confession of our hope. We need to engage ourselves in the church's ministry to declare Jesus Christ and him crucified. The preaching and teaching we engage in should frequently present the work of Christ to us again and again. There are many things that are out there for the church to engage its collective voice in confessing. The world will line those things up for us. But one powerful thing that will clarify our confession of faith and maintain its integrity and power in our lives is to hear it constantly, clearly, and accurately preached. Being engaged in the preaching ministry of the church is vital to help us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And that preaching ministry must be fixed without wavering itself. Fixed on an exclusively scriptural doctrine of salvation. Free from any novelty that might try to impart hope apart from or in addition to the work of Christ. Now additionally, the ordinances bring us together in a similar way, don't they? Notice how both baptism and the Lord's Supper are connected to declaring the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. The church engages in both of these sacraments or ordinances, if you prefer, with an intense focus on the atoning and redeeming work of Jesus Christ. This is a very practical way in which we repeatedly obey the command of verse 23. What is that command? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper, both are a public confession of that hope. And it's one, they're both one, that unites us under Christ's high priestly ministry. It unites us as the redeemed people of God. If you miss the Lord's Supper, or you miss witnessing a baptism, you're literally missing out on a powerful means, an opportunity that the Spirit of God uses to inculcate tenacious and unwavering confession of hope in the church. It's that significant, brethren. These momentary practices may seem regular. And they are. They admittedly are. Necessarily so. But in their regularity, don't miss the deep practical help they provide when we engage in the practice with faith. They strengthen Our grip on our confession of hope in Jesus Christ. They fight against the wavering tendency of our fallen natures to doubt, to be distracted, to fret, to forget. The confession of your hope is empowered when you engage in the ordinances of the church unitedly. So let's be committed to engaging in the ordinances with understanding. Let's not diminish them in our thinking in terms of forgetting the real impact that the church's united practice of the ordinances, that impact that it has on our faith. Now, we've been trying to understand what the writer of Hebrews is teaching us about Christians living together as a community of people saved by Christ's redeeming work. And now I want to finish our time together by looking at the third and final lettuce lesson of the application declared by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10. Look at verses 24 and 25 with me, please. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The third application, simply put, is that we are to stir one another up to love and good works. Since Christ has procured reconciliation with God for us through his blood, and since he is the high priest of the church, we ought to stir one another up to love and good works. If Christ has brought us into relationship with a loving and good God, ought we not also likewise stir up one another to love and good works? Since we are not the only ones, I am not the only one whose reconciliation has been purchased, but rather we are all part of a community of those who've been reconciled to God, does that not imply that we ought to live together in a certain way? Well, yes, it does. What's the answer? Answer, we are to live in a relationship defined by the work of stirring up our brethren. Now let's take a moment to look at this idea of stirring up. First of all, We're told that this stirring up activity is to be the product of consideration. The writer of Hebrews says, let us consider. Now this word translated consider in English is meant to convey the activity of mental pondering that produces full understanding. It's a little deeper than the word consider, isn't it? We're commanded to contemplate and fully discover how we can stir up our brethren. The two words stir up in English are actually one word in Greek. It's a strong word. It means to incite or to agitate to action. Now with that understanding, we have before us a requirement to fulfill which can't be accomplished passively. Stirring up is a deliberate act full of effort. It requires great energy. The writer of Hebrews is telling us that we're to deeply contemplate in order to fully discover exactly how we can incite the activity of our brethren. This is presented then really as a problem, isn't it? It's as if the writer knows that we will be naturally passive and lazy and froward and hard-hearted. But as a church of redeemed brethren... Collectively, we're to work against this natural laziness of the flesh, against its natural tendency to evil works and hatred. Instead, we're to be diligently and actively engaged in the work of knowledgeably agitating one another to love and good works. Now, before we proceed further, let's just pause a moment and consider the implication of what we've just been told. This third let us lesson of application implies that a church that is not actively pursuing the work of learning how to stir up one another to love and good works, and then doing that. Such a church is not even functioning as a church of redeemed believers. A church that's not committed to a focused consideration of stirring up the lives of the brethren has missed the first step of operating as a redeemed community. Now, let's drill down into even more specific applications. We're also being told that our focus in the church is not only our own Christian walk, but the walk of our brethren. We are foundationally not to be consumers in the church, but producers. Our primary goal in terms of the corporate body of the church is to understand the lives of our brethren so that we can work alongside them to produce a loving and good community. This is what we're being told. Now, speaking very practically, this means that we really have to work hard to get to know our brethren. We need to know what stirs them up, what motivates them. That means we can't be isolated. It also means that we have to be willing to put ourselves out there to become known by our brethren. We have to allow our brethren opportunity to get to know us. We need to form relationships that give our brethren opportunity to reach into our lives and give counsel and encouragement and teaching. Why? So that we can be stirred up by them to love and good works. Consider also that this command implies that independently We can't figure out how to practice loving relationship and a life of good works. We can't do that independently apart from the community of our brethren in the local church. I've often noted that those Christians who seem to have little place in their lives for the local church, who seem to avoid the church, who won't put down roots in a local body of Christ, I bet you've noticed this as well, they're usually warped in their Christian lives. They don't know how to serve others. Or what real sacrificial love looks like. Love is sometimes often sensual or superficial or entirely baffling to them. They never learn how to take counsel in Christian living. They don't seem to learn how a holy life is lived out in contrast to the world. They develop, I know you've seen this, they develop oddities of personality. Religious practices become odd, unique, unique because they've refused to follow the healthy spiritual life of Christian growth taught here in Hebrews 10. They've not done that in the context of a local church community. They're like an awkward old spinster or a gruff and distant old bachelor. They develop and maintain oddities of behavior and personality that never seem to work well in the context of relationship with others. Brethren, this is not the way Christians are to live if we follow what the writer of Hebrews is teaching us. It's actually a suppression of the work of Christ as Redeemer and at least a partial refusal to recognize his great high priestly work in his church. That's the implication. Now it's time to ask a final question. Are you ready for the final question? It's the toughest one. It's the question of how. If we are to avoid this spiritually stunting behavior, and instead obediently operate in a church of redeemed believers who are committed to love and good works. How do we do that? The answer is provided in verse 25. I don't have to invent it. You should never let your pastors invent. Notice after the first comma, verse 24. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near the thing we are to do to help us first ponder how to stir up our brethren to love and good works and then to actually do that, the very first step is to not neglect to meet together. It's a really simple answer to begin with, isn't it? You can't consider how to stir one another up to love and good works if you neglect to meet together. You can't operate as a Christian who's reconciled to God by being reconciled to your brethren if you neglect to meet with them. Ironically, I have found that those Christians who separate themselves from the church will often do it on the grounds that the church is unloving or not doing right. Now, how does becoming a spiritual hermit solve that problem? Ironically, by disobediently separating from the community of believers, doing home church or withdrawing through the excuse of my family is my church. Ironically, that behavior is the very behavior the withdrawn neglector is complaining about in the church. It's unloving and disobedient to God. It's not right. The first thing we're required to do then, brethren, living as redeemed, is to live together in the expression of our Christian faith. We are not allowed to neglect to come together, uh, not, uh, not allowed to neglect coming together. Forsaking isn't even an option that's on the table for us. The requirement is to not be neglectful. To forget the assembling of ourselves together is the result of becoming neglectful. It becomes a habit, and habits, you know, they tend to take us over, don't they? The remedy is to establish a different habit, a fixed habit of coming together. Neglect of the Sabbath worship of the church, neglect of corporate prayer, neglect of gathering for fellowship. These things feed selfish, inconsiderate, unloving spirit and behavior in believers. It feeds the corrupt flesh. Gathering together regularly is the first step in cultivating a spirit and behavior that looks out for others rather than self. It's the first step in working to cultivate a culture of love and good works in both the individual Christian and in the church collectively. We're asking the question, how? The second answer to our question, how, is also found in verse 25. If we want to cultivate this attitude and activity of considerate agitation to love and good works, we need to commit ourselves to encouraging one another when we gather together. What good is it? if when we gather together, we tear one another down. Now it would almost be better if we were like the spiritual hermit, if we stayed away from the fellowship of the church, if that's what happens when we come together. There are some in the church, brethren, and you've seen this over the years, I've seen it over the years, I assume you have as well, there are some in the church who do more harm than good. They gossip, they complain, they tear down with their tongue. They arrogantly look down on their brethren. There are some who stir others up to evil. There are some who come into the church and look to receive love and good, but never to reciprocate or produce it in the congregation. There are some whose God is their belly looking to receive honor and benefit, but not return it, not to build it in others. There are some who latch on to pastors and elders and other wise and loving church members or who look for the weak and the stumbling sheep and like leeches they cry, give, give, draining the vitality out of the church and her officers. Now sadly, this is the case in many churches. It has been for thousands of years. If you read the New Testament epistles, you know this to be true. But it ought not be true of the redeemed. We are to look to find wise and effective ways to encourage our brethren. With the word of command to encourage, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that we and our brethren are prone to fear and discouragement. We're prone to weakness and trembling and weariness in the Christian fight. We're prone to give up in the war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're prone to lose patience and forbearance with our stumbling brethren. So the remedy is a committed church membership who will deeply ponder and work to understand their brethren so that they can encourage them to continue in the sanctified war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's easy to become weary in doing good and operating in love. Therefore, as those who are reconciled to God, let's stir one another up by encouraging each other to continue past weariness since the days are evil and the day of the Lord is drawing near. I'm sorry to say I don't have time to develop that last thought regarding the day of the Lord. Suffice it to say that the return of Jesus Christ is the consummate expression of the day of the Lord. For the redeemed church, it's a day of entrance into an existence that will be characterized by perpetual love and good works in the presence of Christ and in the community of the redeemed. Perpetual, uninterrupted, perfect. Do you not long for that day? Since that's our certain end destination, let's endeavor in the strength that God supplies to live to that end now. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. In anticipation of that day and the love and good works which will uninterruptedly characterize our existence from that day into eternity, let us today consider how to stir one another up to love and good works and encourage one another so god help us help us learn to live together as the redeemed amen amen let's close in prayer our heavenly father when you told us that your word is living and powerful And sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, Lord, perhaps there was a moment of understatement. We know you do not understate, Lord. I'm speaking as a man. We know you do not give out your word lightly. And we've been reminded this day, in the time we've gathered together as brethren, that your word accomplishes the end that you send it out to accomplish. And Lord, we pray that you would accomplish it in us. We are weak. We acknowledge it. When we come to you, Father, it's with empty hands, not full ones. We are incomplete at this moment in time in our sanctification. We acknowledge that. But our hearts, Lord, as your redeemed people, yearn for that day when our sanctification will be complete and our community with our brethren will be entirely like Christ, holy, without sin, without blemish, blameless, and in the presence of God. Father, while we yearn for that day, help our yearning to propel us to obedience. We ask that of you because it's in Christ alone that we find the strength to do that. And we know, as we've been reminded this morning, that is your purpose in electing us. So, Father, bring us to that end. Uh, Keep us separate from the world protect us from the wicked one and we pray lord that you would silence the wicked desires of our flesh we ask that you would bring us entirely into conformity to the image of jesus christ it's in his name we pray amen